0: Welcome to the Echo Chamber. I'm your host, Brandy Helm. On this episode, I bring you a story in celebration of the 50th anniversary of Soul to Soul, the legendary music concert that took place in Ghana in March of 1971. This story was produced in collaboration with Afropop Worldwide, the Peabody award-winning radio program dedicated to the music of Africa and the african diaspora if you haven't heard the show before check it out you're gonna love it and now on with the show
1: Turner, recorded live in 1971 at Black Star Square in Accra, Ghana, when they played alongside a bill of American and Canadian musicians at the Soul to Soul Music Festival. There were about 100,000 people in that square.
2: So it was a celebration in itself, but the anticipation that we were going to see somebody like... Tina Turner live and Les McKen, Santana and all those people live for the first time, it was
1: just unbelievable
2: feeling.
1: Hello, George Coligny with you on Afropop Worldwide from PRX. Today's program, Soul to Soul at 50. We'll talk with some musicians and audience members who took part in the festival, as well as Duke professor Tsitsi Ella Jaji, author of Africa in Stereo, Modernism, Music and Pan-African Solidarity, about the rich legacy of musical to and from in the Black Atlantic. The Soul to Soul Festival was held on March 6, 1971, in celebration of Ghana's Independence Day. The concert, which featured Wilson Pickett, Ike and Tina Turner, Santana, the voices of East Harlem and others, was produced by the American father-son team of Ed and Tom Musk. Here is Tom.
3: My family was very interested in West Africa and we were making a movie in Nigeria. And since we were there, James Brown came to town to do a concert. And because of my background, I was a hippie back in the 60s, we came up with the idea of trying to do a concert with James Brown right there in in Nigeria. That didn't work for a variety of different reasons. So my parents, Had contacts in Ghana and so we reached out and everybody thought it was a great idea to do a concert with American black artists so that's how it basically started was because we were there because of our interest in the culture it all came together for a concert that still here we are 50 years later and there's more interest now than there was then
1: This was not the first exchange of this kind it was actually louis armstrong who first visited the country in 1956 during the filming of satchmo the great a film produced by edward r Murrow, documenting the great jazz musicians global travels and while in the gold coast armstrong's first concert was widely popular it was written that after the show Crowds lined up the streets of Accra and a mile-long procession followed Armstrong back to his hotel.
3: In a single performance in Accra, Armstrong and his all-stars played to an audience of 100,000 people. The police said it was a record for the Gold Coast and it may well have set the world's record in the entire history of music. Here is Tsitsi Jaji,
1: author of Africa in Stereo, Modernism music and pan-African solidarity.
4: Louis Armstrong went to Ghana when it was still the Gold Coast in 1956. And for me, that is the beginning of, say, the concert planning process for Soul to Soul in 1971.
5: In Ghana, Louis Armstrong was completely convinced he was a Ghanaian because he met a woman in a market who was so much like his grandmother that he was convinced that this is where he came from.
1: That was musicologist John Collins, longtime friend of our program and resident Ghanaian music expert here at
4: Afropop there are these incredible images of Armstrong getting off the plane with his trumpet in hand, a brass band of high-life musicians there to welcome him playing what he knows as the tune Simon Goose and they are singing All For You. And they jam right away because this is a song and a repertoire and a way of relating to music that makes sense and that they have engaged in on both sides of the Atlantic.
5: The Ghanaians claim the song as a high life. In fact, it's one of the oldest highlights in Ghana. But he recognized the melody. He said that he recalled his grandmother singing the tune. Later on, some other research showed that the melody of All For You was, in fact, a song called Sly Mongoose, the Jamaican Calypso or Mento song, which was recorded in the 30s and 40s. And there were various renditions of it. So I think Louis had forgotten where he'd heard the melody. He just recalled it. So there was a controversy about whether it's an American music come to Africa or an African music gone to America, but it was sort of proving the point that the to and fro between the two sides of the Atlantic have been going on for a long time
6: from Jamaica, right
5: down to Cuba. What's up, on In 1800, when Jamaicans came to Sierra Leone, Freetown, the very first time that they brought Caribbean music to Africa, most people think African music goes to America during the days of slavery, but there was a trickleback of African music from the Americas or African-American Caribbean music, with freed slaves, Brazilian, Jamaican, Maroons, black soldiers fighting in the regimental armies of the British and so on. So the two sides of the Atlantic were never actually disconnected, even though that may have been the purpose of the whites. But in fact, there was a constant to and fro. And there was also, you know, black nationalists like Du Bois and Padmore. There was a constant going and to and fro behind the backs of the colonialists. And music was actually one of the earliest reconnections. People give it different names. They call it the boomerang effect. They call it the homecoming of African music from the Americas to Africa, or a feedback mechanism. But it's been going on for a long time.
1: The following year, in 1957, diplomats from around the world traveled to Accra to join the celebration marking Ghana's new independence. Ghana's first president, Kwame Nkrumah, who himself studied in the United States, became a leader in the new Pan-African movement.
4: Kwame Nkrumah was one of a number of political organizers who led a movement in the Gold Coast towards independence. And he's a really interesting figure because not only does he become the first president of Ghana, he's seen as a kind of leader of Africa more broadly, in part because Ghana was just ahead of the curve in terms of gaining independence in 1957 for many Africans across the continent and black people throughout the world to see an African country become independent and wear its cultural pride so freely was very inspiring. In terms of his political leanings, he was very interested in the work of W.B. Du Bois and in solidarity with people like George Padmore and left-leaning in terms of his politics within a Black tradition. So he issued this call to Black people to regard Ghana as home, and specifically to invite African-Americans who had expertise to come help build the nation. You have dentists and doctors, etc., who moved there and became important, long standing members of the expatriate community there. Maya Angelou spent a year there in the 60s and writes about it in a wonderful book called All God's Children in Traveling Shoes.
5: The Soul to Soul idea. The concept actually was first proposed by Maya Angelou. She was living in Accra in 1962 to 65, and um, she didn't come up with the name Soul to Soul, but she came up with the concept of a big festival to reconnect the two sides of the Black Atlantic. And that was later picked up, sadly, after Nkrumah was deposed, one of the following governments picked up the idea. They gave it the name Soul to Soul because Soul was the dominant force. James Brown was more or less God in Africa at that time. And Wilson Pickett was Soul brother number two, and he was the one who actually came.
4: Being Maya Angelou, she met really important people in academic circles, in government, and particularly in cultural and diplomatic circles. She at the time was a dancer and singer. As such, with so many relationships and an interest in the connections that she was experiencing, that she was looking for, that she was also confronting her own sort of romanticism, she was a great spokesman for these ideas. But of course, to go from an idea, a concept, oh my gosh, wouldn't it be so great if we could bring so-and-so and and -and such-and-such and put on a concert. By the time that concert takes place, Nkrumah has been deposed in a coup. And the folks who take over from him are not part of this Pan-African movement. They have some sympathies in that way, but this certainly wasn't a priority for them. Many of them were much closer in terms of their education to Britain. And so I think it's the strength of her vision and the fact that the musicians who were going to come by the time the concert happens were, you know, like huge global stars. And so just to make a story out of that visit, there's no doubt that it will work. I think that's why the momentum remained despite these political shifts.
1: Kwame Okanse now lives in the United States. In fact, not far from Afropop headquarters in Middletown, Connecticut but he was born and raised in Ghana. As a young man of 27, when the Soul to Soul Festival came to Ghana, he, like so many of his peers, was ecstatic for the hits coming out of America.
2: We knew about everybody, all the musicians here in the U.S., you don't do that. But Ghana, when somebody who sells records, they will have the loudest speakers, And put on all their albums and play them as loud as anybody can hear them just to attract customers. So, with that, we had every song that came out of the US.
4: African American music was just playing good, you know, and it's not new that this music had been circulating in Africa and became really important to local popular cultures. Having the recent soul records, having your bell bottoms, and being able to dress with that kind of panache was such an important way to mark yourself as part of the youth generation. You still had all these older figures who were the figures of authority, and many of them were very beholden to the colonial powers, even if they were defying them much of their education, their idea of structures, societal order, all of that kind of thing. The youth movement was something really different. And so there's that happening. And then I think what's really cool in the 60s is that it's a mutual interest, right? This is starting to be the period when people are gonna wear their Tashikis and take African names and really a sense of identity among African Americans that Africa mattered. The mere fact that the Soul to Soul concert took place, I think is really fascinating in that moment when Blackness meant something globally.
2: For months, we knew it was coming, Soul to Soul. They had made billboards on the highways and on trucks and buses. And they did a very good job advertising this thing. So by the time the event came around, we were all looking forward to some events. We always used to do big stuff for independence celebrations, just like we do here for July 4th. And the price was not that bad. They had several sections where you could pay extra to get closer and then a little less if you were in the stands and with the crowd and I wanted to be with the crowd. That's where the action was. For me, I thought I was a kid. If you think about Woodstock here in the U.S., it was similar with the difference that we never had rain. It was beautiful, 24-hour
1: event, and it was memorable. Meanwhile, across the Atlantic, a group of American musicians were boarding a plane at the Kennedy Airport in New York City, bound for the festival in Accra. For many, it would be the first trip to Africa. And among the group was Kevin Griffin, singer of the group The Voices of East Harlem, who was only 12 at the time. Let me tell you a little bit about Ghana.
3: This was the first country in Africa that became independent after World War II. In 1960,
7: they broke away from the... When they said, we are approaching the airport, the airplane got eerily silent because all of the jubilation, all of the laughter, all of the fellowshipping, all of the joking, all of the human aspects of these great artists all sort of melted in one pot when they said we are about to land. I'll never forget how quiet it got. To see the shift in the airplane, the mood changed. It struck me as something is going on here. This is different. And then when we landed, when we landed, and they said, welcome to the motherland, that was the first time I've heard that phrase. And it was at that point that my attention shifted. And when they opened up the door and we were greeted by that many of our African brothers and sisters, the music playing, it impacted me that this show is not like all the other shows that we had ever performed in. And it was from that moment that I began to pay close attention. It was at that moment I began to grow up a little bit. It was at that moment I began to ask questions. And so the journey began.
2: Oh, my God, the American musicians come in and just seeing them. Some people knew they were coming at the airport. So, days before this event, there had been people who welcomed them at the airport. Those were big events themselves. They had drumming and dancing and screaming at the musicians as if they were family. People who called their names, you would think, It's somebody they knew from somewhere, but these (laughs) were all
1: Americans. But like they said, it's soul to soul, coming back home. For Kevin Griffin, the trip soon became an experience he would never forget. And many questions of his own identity began to take shape.
7: The importance of why they called it the motherland. That was one of the main questions that I was interested in knowing. Number two, Interesting enough, I said, I don't see any white people. I only see black people here. And that was another revelation that was then given to me, the significance of Africa. And then from there, I was able to say, oh, that's why they called it soul to soul. We're bringing our soul to the soul of Africa
1: in the days leading up to the concert the promoters of the festival had arranged for the musicians to visit various villages and cultural sites throughout ghana they experienced the local food journeyed north to the mountain village of aburi where they exchanged song and dance with the population
3: Nana, the voices of this would want to sing to you
1: and most notably they traveled to the Elmina castle to witness the site where much of the slave trade had originated here is Mavis Staples recounting her experience in the soul-to-soul documentary film these were thick brick
0: walls stone these are rooms where the slaves were brought when they unloaded the slave ship until they sorted out who was to stay these shackles were still in the brick where they would be shackled by their wrists and their foot there were so many they couldn't stand side by side so they would stand in single file and they would stand up all night and all day and if you got really sick there was a doorway there, just an open cut to where the slaves, if they got really sick or if they were too old, they'd walk through that door right out into the ocean. That was the most sorrowful and heavy laden, you know, your heart whams up in your throat and tears whelm up in your eyes and you're thinking about all these people and it was an eerie, eerie feeling in there. Sometimes late at night, you can hear the moans and groans coming from here. Their spirits are still here. They're still here.
7: Of course, the most impactful was when we visited the slave trade castle, where the slaves were held uh, before they were transported. They walked us through and gave us to understand that this is the very place where slaves were chained and they were held and they were brought and sold until it was time for them to be transported to the other side of the Atlantic. I do recall very, very clearly the tears that was being shed by many of the adults, both in the group. I was very much struck by the tears that were shed by Mavis Staples and her sisters, I saw tears coming from many, uh, their father, Les McCann, and of course my family. Uh, everyone was, was very much moved.
1: What a powerful experience that must have been. You can hear in their voices just how much they were transformed. Moved by her experience visiting the castle, Roberta Flack later performed the African-American spiritual All Freedom during her set at the festival. the musicians' experiences with local Ghanaian culture, visit afropop.org for more extensive interviews from the program. Coming up, the Soul to Soul Festival comes to Blackstar Square. I'm Georges Colinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRX.
5: I probably heard about it on the grapevine. I mean, it was advertised all over the place. I was working in a student band with some Lebanese and Ghanaian friends, and we heard about it, and so some of us went to the show. I'm a guitarist, so when I first came to Ghana as a student in 1969, Hendrix was the god. But by 1971, he'd been replaced by Santana, and then lo and behold, Santana comes to Ghana. For many of us, we weren't coming to see Wilson Pickett, we're coming to see Santana. But of course, everybody went for their own reason. It won't die, the soul to soul will never die because it's a sort of archetypal musical statement.
2: They started with Ghanaian stuff, the master of ceremonies, he was Michael Egan. He was the national DJ. Every song we ever listened on radio. Now he came in, announced the event and welcomed everybody and then gave a list of who is who. And it started, of course, like in the Ghanaian culture, we had to have a prayer. So the area chief, he came and poured libation. He had two bottles of schnapps in each hand. Normally it's only one, but this guy had two and it was like, oh my God and then he poured a little bit and said his prayer and the event was open. So the first group was talking, drumming people. For me, everything was so very well done, like the best they could display that moment because they knew it was an event that will live in our memories for a long time. The Ghanaian team, they had Dhamma's choir sing, and then another choral group did their song. And then the first American to step on the platform, it was thundering applause. Just welcome the Americans back
1: home. The first American group to take the stage was the
7: voices of East Harlem. It was a sea of people, a sea of African people. The number was nothing new to me because you must understand we did the Isle of Wight. We did Madison Square Garden, you know what I'm saying? So seeing a sea of people was nothing new to me, but to see a sea of black people made it a difference. And then to be able at that juncture now again, in the timeline of it all uh, having been impacted and understanding and maturing and growing and realizing the culture of where i was and significant of africa and the music of africa the beat the rhythm of africa then all of that flooded the stage in my performance at that time and so that's what made the difference that's what made that performance unlike any of the other just the set of it all was nothing new about that, but it was the setting that made it different.
1: And here we have the voices with Kevin Griffin on lead vocals, closing their set with the Richie Havens song Run Shaker Life. And when you see the footage of their performance, Griffin sings and dances across the stage with such energy and charisma, some of the Ghanaian audience thought it was actually Michael Jackson of the Jackson 5. Another memorable performance from the night was from Afro-Latin rock star,
5: Carlos Santana.
2: Santana and guest artist, Willy
5: Bobo. Santana, he had the biggest musical impact in terms of the Ghanaian musicians. Santana's music was just coming into the system at that time and there he was in Ghana playing. So everybody was playing Santana for years. In fact, if you're a Santana man, it was an expression in Ghana that you were sort of a hip, psychedelic type of character, you know, a man or a woman of the moment. So you're a Santana woman or a Santana man. So it became a catchword in Gang.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, we'd like to
7: present the star of the Ike and Tina Turner Review, Miss Tina Turner! Yo! I was very, very, very close relationally to Ike and Tina Turner. I was actually adopted as their on-the-road son because we had traveled so, so much together. And so because of the relationship that I had with them when it was their time, I told them, I want to be at your show. And they said, absolutely. And they asked my mother and told her it would be okay. They would take me. We get in a cab and they were late. So the performance was on a beach front. The backdrop was the Atlantic Ocean. In the daytime, you could clearly see that it was on the opposite side of a huge I don't want to call it wilderness but a big field in africa okay it was untamed it was a big open field in africa in broad daylight when we went to go to do their performance they were a little bit late got in a cab and the cab couldn't get close enough to the stage so in a haste he jumps out of the car with her fully dressed as what we saw recorded, with me holding their hands, running across that field in pitch black to get to the stage. And I won't discuss everything that was happening in that moment of time, but that gave me a very, very close insight to the relationship between them that the world has seen since. But. I was in the room in those types of situations. And so I never shared that piece with anyone before uh, that I was privy to that prior to their performance. And so then in the movie, you saw me sitting at the foot of the stage watching it. That was on the heels of what I had just mentioned to you. One thing that was pretty universal. It don't matter where we performed with Ike and Tina Turner it was the sex appeal. (laughs) She had the most pretty legs and still do at the age. And it's because she was such a great dancer and she was in such great shape. Can you imagine this? Being in Africa, but yet bringing the sex appeal that they were not accustomed of seeing and being around on the norm. And then, of course, the performance, you know, who can say anything short of quintessential, uh, consummate professionals, they were. And so her performance was always, as you saw me, even as a young child, as a son of theirs, gawking at the foot of the stage in amazement of what we had just run across a field together. (laughs) In high heels, I might add, in high heels. Tina Turner is running across a big field in high heels, in full uniform for the performance, get on the stage, and do what she did. Uh, it, it, It just doesn't get any better than that.
1: Turner running through the fields of Accra to make her way to the stage for that epic performance of River Deep, Mountain High. Mm. But it wasn't Justina and Ike making a strong impression on the local crowd. When Frafra percussionist Amua Azango took the stage, they weren't sure what to expect.
3: We have a new song and we'd like to feature on this a great friend and a great musician from Ghana. He's fantastic. And you must, as we have to do at home, learn to honor our black heroes. Right on. You have one right here in Ghana. His name is Amwa. Stand up, Amwa. Amwa. All right.
5: You see that Seoul was already in the system in Ghana by this time. So it wasn't that they introduced New types of soul music. It was already in the system. But I think the greatest impact, collaboration between the Ghanaians, because they didn't collaborate much. There was this annoyance actually with some Ghanaian musicians involved that their role in it was sort of underplayed. The Ghanaians did their thing, the Black Americans did their thing, but the one thing that stands out is Amwa Asangio playing with Les McCann.
4: One of my favorite moments in the concert is when Les McCann and Eddie Harris take the stage. They are going to play music that the Ghanaian audience does not know how to respond to because most people don't know how to respond to experimental jazz and particularly of this moment, what they're doing and the instrumentation, et cetera, et cetera. And it begins with this, a resting performance of a shekere player, Sam Goa, and he is somebody that they've met on their travels and he comes wearing his weave that sort of identifies him as from Northern Ghana and he moves across the stage playing his shekere with just such commitment and energy and they wait for him. And of course we know that they all live in a musical practice of not knowing and trusting that they do and will know how to play together. But there's this pause and then the band starts playing. And I think that performance of having everybody sort of sit with the extensive time in a stadium, and then like quiet in a stadium before the music resumes is so daring. You see the, the sort of uneasy looks of people like,
8: oh,
4: uh, is this what we paid our ticket for, you know, of what's happening? And then it begins again and it coheres and it has all this energy. We also have them doing the price you gotta pay to be free.
3: and together now way back when he was talking about emancipation he didn't want to give me my freedom then so he put me on probation a here we are century later just shot down a great emancipator you wonder why i'd give my life to try to save this foolish nation How much longer will it be? The price you gotta pay to be free.
4: And then you've got the staple singers asking, when will we be paid for the work that we have done? Now to have those kinds of declarations on Ghanaian soil as African-Americans in 1971, when the ink is still fresh in many ways, in terms of Voting Rights Act, etc., That's a very powerful statement. And it's one that's interesting to think about being heard by Ghanaians, for whom those aren't their politics and their history, but that also resonates with other forms of exploitation, that maybe the music is the translator. It's something important that these musicians feel that that kind of an articulation of freedom, but also awareness of value and of a certain kind of debt that has not been paid to them as African-Americans and in the way that they phrase it at that point has not been paid by America, the nation. I think that's a really powerful thing. And it makes it clear that this was a political event. Music is never not political, right?
7: I think everyone at some point or another had to struggle with our performance in this setting. What do we sing? What is appropriate? What will work? What will translate? Everybody struggled with that question. When will we be paid for the work we've done? That is a song that speaks from our ability in America as African Americans, fighting for these liberties. And still, even today, we still don't have them all on the plate. So you're just living in this environment as a rich and proud people, understanding that Earth and all of humanity began on the soils of Africa.
8: Tell me now.
0: He didn't stop to hear you, he hears and sees everything you do. Stop him now and take an inventory, you'll come up
8: with a different story. Because he sees every move you make.
2: Staple singers came on and maybe maybe said something about you all don't have soul. What she said was she didn't think Ghanaians were going to be that enthusiastic and be screaming and shouting you know, like you do here in an American church, you know. But she did not know the people. We were in a trance. Everybody was like, is this real? We're looking at maybe Staple for real, and this is not TV. And so everybody was quiet. But as soon as we got relaxed, you could tell they were jumping on each other. The police had a hard time controlling the crowd. I remember I was in there and I kept thinking, I don't want to be trampled on just because I want to see these people. So, To say we didn't have soul, I mean, are you
6: kidding me?
2: and somewhere at the end of the show when wilson pickett made a gesture for people to come on the platform you could see these ghanian kids dancing as if they were james brown you know we had the moves i myself used to dance like you know i was in
5: <laughs> really the star of the show was wilson pickett He was already a superstar in Ghana, partly because he was America's soul man number two after James Brown. At one point, some policemen who were meant to be on duty jumped on the stage and started to dance because the policemen also liked soul music. That was when the place really erupted.
2: So that day was like once in a lifetime event. We had soul, it was
0: big.
7: soul to soul, that particular project and experience has done for my life, I could never, ever repay. The experience that Africa gave me as a young man, turned my life around, matured me beyond comprehension, and I came home changed and understanding that there was more to life. There was more to me as an African-American, and even today, with seemingly society embracing the social and racial injustice in this country, I can sit and say, we, the voices, soul to soul, we were way ahead of
5: our time. The sad thing about it, that was the first and last time there's ever been a big show like that at Independence Square. A few years later, there was a first of a series of military coups, and so the government became sensitive about using those areas. That was the tragedy with Soul to Soul. We didn't see much follow-up or similar shows taking off. There were a lot of individual artists that came back. From that moment on, there were all sorts of... Even West Indian musicians were beginning to come by the middle of mid-'70s you know, with the reggae music as well. So there's been a constant stream of Black American and Jamaican artists coming into Ghana, forming bands in Ghana, bringing sound systems to Ghana. But the actual Soul to Soul was just, it was sort of like a statement, a statement that was long overdue between the two sides of the Atlantic. That's why it was called Soul to Soul. It's another way of saying Black Atlantic, but in a more poetic way. And it was overdue in the sense that the original idea occurred during the, in days, with Maya Angelou finally took place in 1971 under a different government. So it was just a one-off, once and forever. But it was very important that it was done.
4: It goes without saying that music is a global phenomenon. People listen across borders, even more so today when it's easy to access a lot of music online. You travel on crowded minibuses or chochos in Ghana and people are listening to music on their cell phones and and the music that they're listening to is often the same music that someone in New York would be listening to in terms of hip hop in particular, but also, you know, to some extent, R&B and New Soul and all sorts of things. So that listening culture is old in these places. Folks, Have been listening to hip-hop since the 80s and it's part of how their musical formation unfolded you have people like reggie rockstone in ghana who had african-american family connections and was one of the first people to be doing hip-hop that incorporated tree language into his rhyming and that then has become a whole genre of hip life and subgenres and post genres, etc. et cetera. And so the idea that music stops at a border is just kind of ludicrous. And the idea that it arrives and then stays pristine is also a little bit odd. But at the same time I think that sometimes comes as a surprise to folks these encounters then seed local deeply creative practices that spin off and create new genres and new musics and in the end the goal for all music is what Duke Ellington said to be beyond category and what Miles Davis said that there's only two kinds of music right good music not good music
1: And that brings us to today, where some of West Africa's hip-hop stars are taking over the global music
5: charts. Well, we've actually gone to the third loop, the third cycle. The Slavery was the first music of slaves being taken to the Americas during the era of slavery. The feedback was the second loop, then somehow, miraculously, some of the music finding its way back to Africa, but now we're in that era of Black electronic dance music. I mean, since world music in the 1980s, we have music from Africa being fully recognized in the West. And now, of course, we're into another phase altogether, electronic dance music. And the dance fans in America and Europe have finally recognized that African artists have maybe the strongest contribution to make to the world rhythmically. And I'll tell you the reason for this is that Europeans don't have many rhythms in their music. I mean, you have the walls and the quick steps and so on and various types of folk dances. But when it comes to Africa, I made a guesstimate that there's at least 15,000 separate rhythms around in Africa. Now that the Western world has gone dance crazy, The absolute obvious thing for them to do is to reconnect with African musicians and that's exactly what's happening. This is why all these collaborations are going on with Boy and WizKid and all these guys. So we're actually now at a different level of the loop than Soul to Soul because Soul to Soul, African music was not recognized in the West. Nobody had ever heard of it. Great music coming out of Africa, but that's all changed in the 80s with world music and then now that trend It's not based on a political or pan-African reconnection. It's based on the world needing rhythms to heal because the Western world has become so robotic. If you want to go get rhythms, Africa's the place.
1: Funding for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art and from PRX, affiliate stations around the US. And thank you for supporting your public radio station. Thanks to Tsitsi Jaji, John Collins, Kwame Onkansé, Kevin Griffin and Tom Musk for their help with this program. Visit Afropop.org for photos and footage from the festival. And you can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at AfropopWW. My AfroPop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research and production for this program by Brandy Howell. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, including radio programs and our AfroPop Close-Up podcast series. And don't forget to join us next week for another edition of AfroPop Worldwide. Our chief audio engineer is Michael Jones. This program was mixed at Studio 44 in Brooklyn by Zubin Hansler. Additional engineering by GC from the syncopated lair in Washington, D.C. Banning Air and C.C. Smith edit our website afropop.org. Our director of new media is Ben Richman, and I'm Georges Collinet.